right. Hey, welcome back to the podcast. I'm Brian, and this is Our Weird World. So, I recently, unfortunately, got sick and had lost my voice. So, still a little rough, but definitely better than I had been really wanting to record this episode for a few days and get it out but unfortunately I just wasn't able to uh, for about uh, at least a couple of days I had no voice just could not talk at all so but it's it's back so hopefully you all enjoy this this is an episode that I've really been wanting to do for a while I've listened to a couple podcasts about it before uh, I've watched some documentaries on it it's a really interesting one I hope you all enjoy this so this episode is about what is called the Dyatlov or Dyatlov Pass incident. I'm going to pronounce it Dyatlov. Most of the resources I found pronounce it Dyatlov. Uh, the documentary I watched pronounced it Dyatlov. So I'm, I'm going to pronounce it Dyatlov. It, it, it's a gentleman that was in this named Igor Dyatlov. I'm going to call him Igor Dyatlov. If you know better, please let me know. So what exactly is this? What what happened? What is the, the Dyatlov Pass incident? There were nine... Soviet trekkers. Now they were they were all experienced trekkers. They hike, ski. They've been doing this for a while. They know what they're doing. That they all died in the northern Ural Mountains, somewhere between February first and February second, nineteen fifty nine. So so late at night. It, it it's not exactly certain whether it was on the first or the second, but somewhere late at night or early in the morning, uh, either on the first or the second of February, nineteen fifty nine, that they perished out on these the Ural Mountains. They were all from the Ural Polytechnical Institute, which is a institute college that was founded in 1920, and now it is actually called Ural State Technical Institute. The events of the Dialov Pass incident occurred on the eastern slopes of what is called the Kolat Siakol. It's Russian. Forgive me. I'm not very familiar with Russian. I'm going to try to pronounce these names as best as possible. So... They occurred on the eastern slopes of the Colette Seacle. This is where they had set up camp and where they their bodies were later discovered. So overnight, again on the night of the February 1st or February 2nd, something had caused them to leave their tent that they had set up camped and flee into these sub-zero temperatures. Now this area is in part is technically in part of uh, Siberia, Russia. So you can imagine it's very cold there and it's February. So it's going to be extremely cold and we'll talk a little bit uh, later as far as what kind of temperatures they were dealing with. So in the night they fled into these sub-zero temperatures while some of them not being fully dressed. Uh, we'll get into more of how they were their bodies were discovered as far as how much clothing they had or how little clothing they had also. All nine of the individuals would be found dead at some point and some of them under very unusual circumstances. So what exactly happened? What caused them to leave in such a panic and caused them to all perish? That's what we're going to get into. So the group was formed for a skiing expedition that was going to go across the northern Ural Mountains in what is called Sverdlovsk Oblast. I'll, I'll uh, have a picture of showing where this is at. It's basically a state in kind of uh, northeastern central uh, Siberian Russia. It was led by Igor Dialov who at the time was a 23-year-old engineering student at the Polytechnical Institute. 
he was also the team leader of this expedition. Now, he selected nine others. Now, you're thinking, wait, him plus nine, that's ten, right? We'll get to that in here in a minute. So most of the group, they were fellow students at this institute that he was attending. And initially, this group was made up of eight men. So it was Igor Alexeyevich Dyatlov, Igor Dyatlov, Yuri Nikolaevich Doroshenko, or Yuri Doroshenko. Uh, I believe this is Georgie or Georgi or Gorgai, possibly. Alex Alexeyevich Krivonashenko. His nickname was Yuri. And then there was Alexander Sergeyevich Kolevatov, Rustam Vladimirovich Slobodin, Nikolai Vladimirovich Thibaut Brinoles. His last name almost looks like a French name, so I'm not exactly sure how to pronounce that, but Thibaut Brinoles. Next was Semyon Alexeyevich Zolotiryov. Zolotiryov. Uh, his nickname was Alexander. And then Yuri Yefimovich Yudin. Now this is the one that he actually survived. And we'll get into why here later. And then there are also two women in this expedition. Ludmila Alexandrova Dubinina. Excuse me. Ludmila Alexandrova Dubina. Dubinina. Dubinina. And the other woman was Zineda Alexeevna Komogorova. Komogorova. I might refer to them by their first names or their last names throughout this. So, but I just, that's, that's the 10 original members of the expedition. So each member of the group was a very experienced hiker and skier. They, they had been out in conditions like this. They knew what they were doing. It wasn't like they were first timers or anything like that. Um, they were actually, they were basically like, they had a certification level that was like kind of a mid-level experienced ex, ex hiker, skier, uh, expedition, expeditionary person, however you want to put it. And they were actually, um, especially Igor, the leader, they were trying to get this next level, like, like expert level certification. And, and they were going to use this expedition as experience to get that certification. So the route that they would follow would actually take them to the far northern regions of the Sverdlovsk Oblast and to the upper streams of the Lazva River. Again, I'm going to put a picture of a map that shows uh, this state and this area and basically where they were going. So their expedition was confirmed by the Sverdlovsk Committee of Physical Culture and Sport on January 8th of 1959. Their goal was to reach a mountain called Otorten. This mountain was approximately 10 kilometers or 6.2 miles north of the site where they would be found. A few weeks later, on January 23rd, the Dialov Expeditionary Group, they were given their route book or route book. I say route, you know, tomato, tomato. They were given their route book and actually left uh, Sverdlovsk, Sverdlovsk, yeah, Sverdlovsk City that same day. Uh, Sverdlovsk City uh, nowadays is actually called uh, Yekaterinburg. I believe that's how it's pronounced. It's the largest city in this state. Uh, nowadays has roughly one and a half million population. So they left this the city the same day they got their, their route books to head out on their expedition, which was uh, January 23rd. Now, two days later, January 25th, they arrived in the town of Ivdel, 
Now, this was a town that was centered in the province of Sverdlovsk Oblast, another, another town in that same area. They would later take another truck to the last inhabited settlement called uh, Vizai or Vizai. Uh, I'm not V I Z H A I. If you know exactly how to pronounce that, let me know. Uh, Vizai, that's how I'm going to call it. Another two days later, on January 27th, their trek would actually begin. So they started trekking out. They started going out. They they had everything they needed. They were they were off. They were headed out. Now the very next day, Yuri Yudin, the survivor, he actually turned back because he actually had severe joint pain due to having rheumatoid arthritis uh, in his knees. He, it was also known that he had a congenital heart defect. So because of this, for health reasons, it was determined that he should go back for his own well-being. So he did turn back on his own and returned and went back. But the remaining nine did continue on. So as the remaining nine began climbing up into the mountains, the weather conditions began to worsen with the incoming snowstorm, heavy winds, and very decreased visibility because of the storm. Now this actually caused the group to lose their direction and actually started to wander west of where they should have been towards what I mentioned earlier, the Colat Siakal, where they were uh, later found, which was a... Uh, away from the mountain that they should have been going to. Now, realizing their mistake, Igor decided that they needed to set up camp with the worsening conditions, and they decided to, he decided to set up camp on the slope of this mountain where they were at the Colat Siakal. But even though they set up this camp here, there was a forested area downhill from them that was approximately 1.5 kilometers from where this camp was set up. Now, this spot that was downhill in this forested area was basically on the tree line of this forest it was concluded by investigators that this would have been a much better location for shelter for the campers. And as experienced outdoorsmen, it was initially confusing to investigators as to why they set up their camp where they did. Some have guessed Igor made his decision as an opportunity to test his camping skills, uh, especially in the harsher uh, conditions. Now, Yudin, the survivor, one that had turned back, he actually said, quote, Dyatlov probably did not want to lose the altitude they had gained, or he decided to practice camping on the mountain slope. So he even later put it out in a statement basically saying this, like, here's what I think that he was thinking, that that's why he set up camp here. It makes sense. Again, it was questionable as to why they set up camp there, but again, he's trying to get this experience up to this next level of certification, if you will, so it seems like he's just trying to test his knowledge and experience. Okay, so... They set up camp there. Now, before Yuri had left to turn back, the survivor Yuri Yudin, Igor Dyatlov actually told him that he would send a telegram to their sports club, that, that the, the committee that had uh, uh, given them their route books and all that and had confirmed the expedition. He said he would send them a telegram uh, once they had returned. They figured it would be probably around February 12th, but it was known that it could take a little bit longer with expeditions like this, especially this time of year with the weather. So after the 12th came and passed, no messages had been received. But at this time, there wasn't much reaction and much concern, again, because they knew that some expeditions such as this could take a little bit longer. So this is pretty common. So they weren't too concerned yet. However, by February 20th, the first rescue groups were sent to investigate at the demands of the families. They were concerned now, saying, hey, this has been way too long. It, it wasn't known for them to be this long, you know, this late in, in returning from expeditions such as this. So 
you need to send somebody out there to, to check this out. So a rescue group was sent. Now this rescue group consisted of other students from the Polytechnical Institute that had volunteered and later actual local law enforcement and military would join the search, the, the rescue search party. So with that, on February 26th, so this is six days later after the, the first group was sent out, six days later, February 26th, they discovered the tent. And it was already confusing to the, the, to the search party as to the manner in which they found the tent. So at this time, the tent was discovered partially covered in snow, which could be expected based on the weather that was seen at the time and weather reports of obviously the, the big snowstorms that were in the area. The tent was also empty of any individuals. There are no people inside of it. However, their belongings and most of their shoes had been left inside the tent. So that was really kind of dumbfounding. Like, well, why would they leave without their shoes and, and, and a lot of their belongings? What exactly happened? So other mysterious findings was that the tent had been either torn or cut open, but from the inside. Like, they were trying to get out as fast as possible not really trying to get out of the, the main egress points of the tent. Just get out, get out, get out. Just ripping through it, basically. So that seems really odd. So all nine of these students, they had fled suddenly and seemed were determined to get out as fast as possible. So what, what was it that caused them to flee in such a manner? There's a lot of theories, and we'll get into that a little bit here. Some are pretty good. Some are a little bit out there. But we'll talk about that in a little while. The search parties did discover footprints that were clearly visible leaving the tent. It was also determined that they were either barefoot, wearing socks, or even just one boot. So this again really brought it home to them that they were in a panic trying to get out immediately. So these footprints, they followed them and led them to the nearby woods. The one that I mentioned that was roughly uh, one and a half kilometers uh, to the northeast of their campsite. Now, near this forest, there was evidence of a small fire that was actually found, as well as the first two dead bodies, unfortunately. Now, these were the bodies of Georgie, or Georgi, uh, Krivonashenko, also known as Yuri. That was uh, one of his nicknames. And the other Yuri, Doroshenko. Now, so the two Yuris, uh, these were the two Yuris that had stayed in the expedition, because remember, Yuri Yudin was the one that had gone back. So there were, there were effectively three gentlemen by the name of Yuri. Uh, two with, with the given name, one with as the nickname. So these are the two years that had stayed with the expedition. They were found here at this, this uh, location. And they were actually discovered wearing only their underwear. So that was also a little bit confusing, being that they were the first two found. But a little bit further, you'll see it, it kind of makes sense why they were found. So three more bodies were discovered later between the tent and the small fire. So the dis the, the where the tent was at and this one and a half kilometers to this forested area where they found this fire area, they found the body of Igor Dyatlov, uh, one of the women, Zaneda, and uh, the other gentleman, Rustam Slobodin. Now, these three were actually found in positions that would suggest they were attempting to return to the campsite as far as the direction like that their bodies were, they were noted the way they, their bodies were found. But, the three of them were not together. Rather, they were spaced out in the same general direction, again, leading back towards the tent. So we have five individuals of the nine now uh, spoken for, but the other four they actually didn't find later until May 4th. So you're talking 
over two months later. Now, they were found under snow in a ravine that was about 250 feet further into the woods from the, uh, the this fire pit area that uh, the two Yuris were discovered. Three of these four were actually found more dressed than the others that were discovered in February. So that would uh, suggest that the two that were discovered with just their underwear, that these three, it's assumed that the, they, the other two had died before and these three took their clothing to layer up because of the cold conditions and that would make sense if you're in a survival mode where it's like okay unfortunately two of my my companions they passed away but in order to help ensure my survival i can take their clothing that, that makes sense that makes a lot of sense to me I, I i could see them doing that okay let's take their clothing they're deceased maybe this will help me to have a better chance and so the the amount of clothing that these three had on definitely was an indicator of this that they had taken clothing from the others and and the particular clothing that it was they later determined yes they had taken the clothing from their deceased companions so it's very unfortunate but they're they're trying to survive so yeah some of the clothing that they discovered from the deceased individuals they had been slightly burnt and torn the, their trousers and uh ludmilla dubanina it was discovered that she also had her left foot and leg wrapped with a torn jacket so that would indicate some sort of injury that maybe she was trying to uh, provide the first aid to herself or somebody had to help to provide first aid to herself so again what what happened what what is going on here so when the first bodies were discovered in february there was a legal inquest that was kicked off it was determined that these five had died from hypothermia that makes perfect sense as far as being it was it was february winter so rustam slobodin he actually was found with having a small crack in his skull, but the medical examiner determined that this was not what killed him. This was not considered fatal. Now, the other four that were discovered in May, they were found with significant injuries. Nikolai Thibault Brinolis, the one that, like I said, almost looks, looks like a French last name. I'm, I'm going to list their name. You'll be able to see their names. His skull was crushed in. What caused that? I don't know. What? The theories when we get into it you, you can let me know what your thoughts are I'll, I'll give you a little bit of maybe what i believe so dubinina and semyon or also known as alexander they had their chest cavities crushed in as well so nikolai had his skull crushed in dubinina and semyon they had their chest cavities crushed in but their bodies had no other wounds associated with these fractures so how do they receive such catastrophic injuries? Further damage to their bodies led to further confusion and other theories as to their demise. The, these four found in May, they were also left at the bottom of a creek, which caused significant soft tissue damage to their heads and faces. Now, Dubinina, she was missing her tongue, her eyeballs, her lips were uh, partially torn, and some of her facial tissue and a fragment of her skull were missing. How do you explain that? Was it animals that ate her? Was it somebody that was mutilating her body? It seems pretty odd to me. Now, Semyon, or Alexander, he was also missing his eyes. Alexander Kolovitov, he was missing his eyebrows. This just kind of makes you want, what, what exactly caused this? What? Why do they have such mutilation of the bodies? Now, obviously, like I said, their bodies were found in a creek that did cause soft tissue damage to their heads and face from the extreme cold of the water and everything. Okay, that's understandable. But the missing tongue, the missing eyeballs, the missing eyebrows, 
that's very unusual. So some have actually speculated that a local tribe called the Manzi people had actually attacked and murdered the group for encroaching on their land. Some local Manzi people were even interrogated because of this theory. Now the Manzi people, they're a native population of the areas west of the Ural Mountains. In the first millennium, they had actually migrated to Western Siberia and assimilated with other native inhabitants and have been in contact with Russian states going back as far as the 16th century. So they're, they're a known native tribe in this area. They're known as a semi-nomadic uh, hunter, which meaning they'll basically move during warmer seasons uh, for hunting in order to find food. With this, they're known to hunker down during winter months as well in uh, huts that they actually make out of earth and branches. Almost reminds me of like, uh, if you live in the southwest where I live, like uh, adobe structures, uh, kind of similar to that, using the natural environment to create a structure to live in during the winter. Especially again, because where they're at, extreme colds. So it's thought because of this, that it's very unlikely that they were responsible for the expedition's deaths. Also, there was no evidence to indicate there were any Manzi even present in the area at this time. So also the injuries incurred were of such great force, it's thought they could not have been performed by a human and had to have been from some other source. I get they're trying to point fingers in the initial investigation. It, it seems like an easy target, unfortunately. But to me, I don't think that the Manzi had any um, involvement with their deaths. Now, during the time that the Nine perished, the temperatures were determined to be anywhere between negative 13 to as low as negative 22 degrees Fahrenheit or negative 25 to negative 30 C. This is extremely cold. Me personally, I've experienced negative 30 Fahrenheit with a wind chill of negative 50. And that is, it was extremely cold. And I only experienced this for a very short period of time. I wasn't out in this overnight camping or anything like that. And this was, it was brutal cold. So those are the type of temperatures that they were dealing with camping out on this mountainside. Very cold, extremely cold. Now, the deceased were actually found, again, partially dressed, as I stated before, and had only one shoe or, or only wearing socks or barefoot. Now, this helped reinforce the nature of their exit from the tent, obviously being that it was, it was you know, that they had left, obviously, in a panic, very rushed. Other reports indicate six members had died from hypothermia, like I had mentioned before, and the other three of the, the fatal injuries, the, the, you know, the catastrophic damage, the, the collapsed chest and, and, uh, and skull. But there were no other indications of others in the area other than the expedition members in, in this particular, again, like I said with the Manzi, there, there was nobody reported in this immediate vicinity at the time. It is estimated that they died anywhere from six to eight hours after they had eaten their last meal. So that would kind of indicate that, okay, you know, you, you, camp, you set up camp, eat a meal inside your tent, whatever provisions you have, and then, they, okay, and then they left. Yeah, that makes sense with roughly the time frame. So also there were documents that were released that didn't indicate the condition of their internal organs. I couldn't find anything related to it mentioning how their organs were. Would it really matter to the investigation? Maybe to me looking it up or anybody else that's interested or anybody listening to this podcast, perhaps. But based on some of the evidence that we'll get into a little bit further, it kind of makes sense why they might not have included this for certain reasons. 
Also, it was discovered that there was radiation found on one of the victim's clothing. Now, that seems a bit unusual too. And we'll get into that here in a little bit also. So let's talk about some of the theories as to what's going on here, how they died, what happened, all these, a lot of different theories that come up. So the first one I want to talk about has to do with their uh, lack of clothing. So again, some people think they just left in a panic out of their tent. Now, if they were tenting out there in the extreme cold like this, it's likely they might have been wearing clothing while they're sleeping um, or, or obviously had some really good sleeping bags. Again, mind you, this is the late 1950s. You know, the, the type of equipment that was available back then was going to be a lot different than what you can find nowadays. So anyways, one of the theories is called paradoxal undressing. Now, this is an occurrence where a person will actually remove clothing in a response to having a perceived feeling of warmth during hypothermia. This doesn't really seem to be a significant theory to those without the, that were found without the clothes as others were found with multiple layers. So it's thought that, you know, they took the clothes from their deceased friends. So if they were experiencing hypothermia and paradoxal undressing, why weren't these others found nude as well? Rather, they had multiple layers. So that one, you know, it, it is an actual phenomenon. You know, if you want to look into it more, you certainly can. It is kind of interesting. But it's kind of thought that that's a, a little weak with as far as what's going on here, that it is believed, okay, these people perished. Their teammates took their clothing to try to help their chances. That's what I believe happened. Don't mind that. That was me hitting the table on accident. Now, as far as just their deaths as a whole, there are some a lot of theories. Now, the, the main one, we're going to get into it. There's some different good theories. There's some that eh, seem a little weak to me, but the biggest one is that there was an avalanche to blame for all of their deaths. Okay, that that seems fair. That time of year, I, I could see that, but but why? So on July 11th, 2020, Andre Kuryakov, he's actually the department head of the Urals Federal District. He actually stated an avalanche was the official cause for death. He actually came out with a report and said, yes, this was the official cause of their death. Now, an independent computer simulation also suggests an avalanche was the cause. This was all done recently, within the last couple of years. Okay, they're using modern technology to try to investigate and understand what the cause was. All right, sure. But why were they fleeing from their tent in the middle of the night? That's still up, up in the air as, as to what happened. You know, did they hear the avalanche? Was it something that, some noise or something that they heard that, that caused them to get out? I, I don't know. Other contradictory evidence states the location of the tent did not have any significant signs of an avalanche in, uh, occurring there in that area where they were actually at. So had there been an avalanche in that area, there would have been certain patterns to indicate evidence of that, such as debris would have been strewn in the area, across a wide area uh, in, that, in where they were camped, and there was no evidence of this at the time. Also, the bodies found only had a small layer of snow covering them, rather than being like enveloped in snow so had there been an avalanche big enough to produce these kind of forces to kill them there should have been more significant damage to the area and to them and even to the nearby forest tree line where the two were discovered by the little fire that fire <clears throat> excuse me by the fire that they had made so okay uh was it an avalanche starting to maybe think maybe not so also there have been over a hundred expeditions to this region since this incident in 1959 occurred and they reported no conditions to create an avalanche of this sort that could cause this much 
devastation. There was also a study that revealed this area was very unlikely to have an, av an avalanche at the time. There was another area nearby that had much steeper terrain, much steeper hillsides, that it was observed to have, quote, dangerous conditions in during the months of April and May because of uh, runoff from snowmelt. Okay, that makes perfect sense. Now, this happened in February, so it is pretty much agreed that it was much too cold with these extreme negative temperatures to have happened in February under such conditions at this time. Also, there was an analysis of the slope that showed that if an avalanche had occurred, its path would have actually flowed past the tent, and the tent had actually collapsed in a manner that didn't match up with this idea. So, all right, yeah, like I said, maybe it wasn't an avalanche. Now, the experience that Igor and Semyon possessed would also indicate that they would have known what to look for as far as an avalanche and would have known to not camp in a specific, uh, you know, a particular area that might have been known for being in the path of an avalanche. Now, again, you have to remember there was a nasty snowstorm with a lot of wind and they had veered off west because they couldn't see properly. So perhaps they were, didn't have the, the visual evidence they could look around and determine is this a good spot or not. Okay, yeah, that's possible. Also, their footprints in the snow indicated the nine were not running from the tent. The investigators determined that they were actually walking. So they're getting out in a rush, but then just once they were out, they're like, okay, all right, moseying about. You think if you knew there was an avalanche coming, you're going to be trying to get out of there as soon as possible, right? At least me, that's what I'm going to try to do, get away from there as soon as possible. There's another theory that has come up. This one's pretty cool. I like the idea of this, but it, it, it still seems a little weak, but it's pretty cool. So there's this, this, this phenomenon known as catabatic winds, which is a drainage wind that actually carries high-density air from higher elevation down slopes under the force of gravity. They're also sometimes known as fall winds as well. That's another common name you might hear them referred to. Now, these winds can reach speeds similar to that of like a hurricane. However, most recorded tend to be much slower. Uh, typically around 10 knots or 18 kilometers per hour. So really not a super strong wind. Now, again, there was a snowstorm, and it was reported that there were high winds from the snowstorm. So was it a freak catabatic wind or fall wind that was of extremely high speeds? It, it certainly is possible, but again, I'm, I'm kind of thinking likely not. Again, like I said, a, a very sudden catabatic wind could have made it possible for the, you know, I, it, I don't know, it's... It's a maybe. It's a maybe. But that, that's just, that's where I'll leave it at. So there's another theory that also could have been a cause for, especially for them leaving the tent in a hurry. It's what is referred to as infrasound. Infrasound. Also known as infrasonic sound. Now this is a very low frequency noise, typically below 20 hertz. Now 20 hertz is roughly the lowest frequency that most humans can hear under normal circumstances, lower frequencies you can actually hear so long as the volume of it is high enough. Uh, I'm actually going to play a little tone of 20 hertz just to give you an idea of what it sounds. It, it's a pretty low, deep bass. But I'm also going to play an even lower frequency that is technically considered infrasonic or infrasound at about 17 hertz. At a normal volume, it's actually very hard to hear. But again, if the volume is up, you can actually, most people can typically hear it. But like I said, it is thought that 20 hertz is kind of the lowest that most people can hear. So here's an example of a tone at 20 hertz to give you an idea of what that sounds like. 
And this is a sample of a tone at 17 hertz. So again, this is considered infrasound, but you can still hear it. Again, like I said, as long as the volume is turned up pretty loud. So these frequencies have been known to be used for monitoring earthquakes and volcanoes. They can occur in nature during severe weather, such as avalanches or earthquakes, volcanoes. Uh, they've even been measured at waterfalls and even in uh, lightning. So is it possible that, okay, there's an avalanche, it's producing this super low frequency infrasound that you wouldn't necessarily hear it, but you would actually be able to feel it. So with some of these infrasonic sounds, it, it's thought that you can actually feel them. And some studies have suggested that long exposure to really low infrasound can actually cause like sensations of dread or fear or even panic. So, okay, perhaps that's what they were hearing or feeling, if you will. And maybe it was messing with their head because it has been known also that uh, really low infrasound such as this, you can feel them on your eardrum. Maybe you don't hear them, but you can actually feel them and they will actually cause you to have almost like sensations of like seasickness as well. So were they feeling this infrasound? That's what initially caused the panic of them getting out. Maybe it was freaking them out. That, that's one theory that's thought of and it, it kind of makes sense. But also too, it's like, eh, it's a possibility. Now there's another big theory of military testing. Of course there is. Mind you, this is 1950s Russia. This is USSR. So it's stated that the campsite was within the path of a Soviet parachute mine exercise. Now these were mines in all the typical sense that would actually be dropped out of an aircraft and they would have a parachute on them to slow their descent. Now they wouldn't actually explode when they hit the ground. They were actually designed to explode above ground. So it's thought that the group was suddenly woken by explosions and fled their tent shoeless and panicked from these mines blowing up in the air. You know, if, if it if they were indeed within the path of this parachute mine exercise area, you know, okay, maybe. But again, there was a nasty storm. Would they be doing a test like this in, in such weather? Perhaps, you know, perhaps they want to see how it would go in weather such as this. I couldn't really find any more on it, but if you know any further about this particular theory, uh, let me know. I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. I, I kind of like it, but also kind of don't. We'll see a little bit more here, kind of some of the stuff why I, I kind of like it. I'm not saying I believe it. I just, I like the idea of this. So there are records to indicate that the Soviet military uh, were testing such mines in this area at during this time, in, in the winter of 1959. So these mines were meant to explode in the air above the ground, not actually when they strike the ground. Now it's thought that the injuries that were sustained to the two that had the uh, caved-in chest cavity and the crushed in skull were a direct result of this, of these explosions. That would make sense for them, but what about the others? Okay, they did say they died of hypothermia exposure. Perhaps they got separated. Those individuals that had the damage, the extreme injuries, perhaps they got killed by one of these mines, and the others were able to flee away from the area, but then died from exposure. Okay, that's a possibility. I could see that being an explanation. At this point, it seems somewhat legit. So, so this one's a bit more of a stronger maybe with me. There is another theory that states that the Soviets were actually testing radiological weapons in the same area. Now this would explain the radiation that was discovered as I had previously mentioned. 
It was reported by relatives having seen their loved ones at funerals as well as having orange-colored skin and gray hair. However, if this were true, all of the members of the group would have had significant radiation found on them. And not just on them, but on their items, the, the tent, everything else around the area, even just the wilderness. This wasn't the case. So I don't believe this one at all. I, I don't find this one true as well. Also, it's noted that discoloration of the skin and hair, uh, such as was seen by the families at the funerals, this has been known to occur due to mummification, uh, especially for those being left undiscovered for months in extreme cold and wind, such as the ones that had sat out there for over two months. So this is a phenomenon that has been recorded before. So radiological weapons, to me, I don't think it happened. I, I don't, the evidence of that one just, it's the radiation alone. It would have been everywhere. So I don't really agree with that one. Now, later in 2015, there was another investigation that actually came out. This was a group of experienced members of the investigative committee of the Russian Federation. They came out and said, it's an avalanche that caused all of this. They confirmed the weather on that night was extremely harsh with winds up to 67 miles per hour or 108 kilometers per hour. A snowstorm and temperatures reaching down as low as negative 40 C were to blame along with this avalanche. So according to this committee, extremely bad weather and lack of experience of the group led to their deaths. But unfortunately, this still left some questions because there's still some unusual circumstances. It is also thought that the suppression by Soviet authorities of files indicates evidence of a government cover-up. Is there? I mean, perhaps. You know, again, this is 1950s USSR. It's shortly after World War II. We're going into the Cold War era. So perhaps it was. Perhaps there was some other weird things going on that we just don't know about that were never discovered or seen. Yet the concealment of such incidents was standard procedure in the USSR at the time. So this does seem somewhat peculiar, but could be dismissed as by later in the 1980s, the DLL files had been released by the USSR. But again, how much did they release? Did they release just enough to say, here you go? No, we didn't cover it up. And did they keep some secret? Perhaps we'll never know. Also, I don't want to forget, there was another group of hikers they weren't in the immediate vicinity. They were reported to be approximately 30 miles south of where this incident occurred. Now, they reported seeing strange orange spheres in the sky to their north, which would be towards where this incident occurred on the night of this incident. Now, spheres like this were also reported in surrounding areas throughout February and March of that same year. Was this the parachute mines exploding and had been seen by others further away? Or was it some other sinister event? I don't know. If it was the mines, I could see that. Potentially they're seeing them explode off in the distance. But if they're roughly 30 miles away, you would think if it's that large of an explosion to see, you might also, maybe you'd hear it or even feel it. I'm not sure. I don't, I don't know the exact like science of that as far as an explosion. I don't know how big the particular explosion would have been. But okay, perhaps it was the mines. Now, with all of this evidence, it, it almost makes me wonder if, was it an avalanche? Maybe it was. So, before I finish, maybe, maybe it was a combination of all these different things. You have the theory of the avalanche, which seems to be the main one that, that 
the Russian government kept saying, and the investigators kept saying, yep, it was an avalanche, it was an avalanche, it was an avalanche. Now, there are some documentaries out there you can watch that actually, I wouldn't necessarily say that they prove this for certain, but they have they, they bring really good evidence to indicate that it had to have been an avalanche. Um, I'll try to find them and link them if I can or something, but there, there's some fairly good evidence that it could be. I'm still not really sure myself. But again, like I said, maybe, maybe it was a combination of all these things. Maybe you had an avalanche that was coming. It was causing these low-frequency infrasounds to basically drive the individuals mad and run, you know, tear their tent apart from the inside to flee. But then, again, why all of a sudden were they found walking, if you will, from some of the evidence that was uh, discussed earlier? I don't know. I'm not sure. There's a lot of different theories as to what the exact cause was. So later in 1990, uh, one of the lead investigators, he actually published an article stating his team had, quote, no rational explanation for the incident. Okay, they've been saying it's avalanche. This one guy comes out saying no rational explanation. Maybe it was an avalanche. Maybe it was something else. He also claimed his team reported seeing the, the orange spheres that had been seen by others. But he was actually, from, from his statement, he was told by his higher-ups to, quote, leave this out of his report. Okay, that, that seems a bit odd. That definitely points more towards military testing and government cover-up. Hmm, seems a little fishy, right? I don't know, that's all I can find of that. Again, it's trying to find some of this information. There's a lot out there that's available, but I think there might also be a lot that's not out there that we as the public are not seeing. So now another few years later in 1999, the Dietlov Foundation was actually founded with the help of Ural State Technical University, which used to be the Ural State, the Ural uh, Polytechnical Institute. This foundation actually maintains uh, a museum called Dietlov Museum in the town of Yekaterinburg, and they do continue to investigate this case. So they're, they're still trying to discover the truth and figure out what exactly happened to these individuals. Also, in July of 2016, there was a memorial plaque that was actually placed in the town of Solokamsk in the Ural Perm region. I'll, I'll try to uh, find a picture of it and uh, add it to this, or, or at least put it in the Facebook group. And it was actually dedicated to Yuri Yudin, the only survivor of this expedition. Now, Yuri Yudin, he actually lived until the age of 75 when he passed away in 2013. So he had just passed away three years prior to this plaque being placed and it was dedicated to him. So that, that's pretty nice. It's nice that they did that for him as being the sole survivor, because technically he was a part of the expedition. Yes, he left early, but it's nice to see that they dedicated it to him and, and that he was able to live you know, a long life. So again, there's a lot of different theories behind this, a lot of different ideas as to what happened. Was it nature? Was it just a bad combination of things that just came down all at, all at once in this area? Was it military testing? Was there a government cover-up? So what do you think? You know, my, my, my final thoughts are there's a lot of good evidence that points towards it being an avalanche, but all the mutilation of their bodies, it, it still leads me to think it had to be something else. Or maybe it was a combination of things, like I said before. Maybe it was all this combination of this, of this weather, but then something else came along, you know, to mutilate their bodies. Maybe it was a combination of the weather and the military testing of these mines. That's a big possibility too. Now, there is one theory I didn't want to talk about initially. I actually had left it out of my research. I discovered it with one of the documentaries I watched and some of the research I looked up. 
I'm just going to mention it. I'm not going to go into it. I'm just going to mention it for you. If you want to run with it, go whatever. There is thought of a Russian Yeti. I'm just leaving it at that. Take it for what it is. Anyways, I hope you guys enjoyed this. Hopefully my voice sounded okay. I'm, I'm still recovering from having lost my voice over the weekend. I, I basically couldn't talk for a couple of days. But yeah, let, let me know what you thought. If, if you have any ideas or theories, maybe you have further research that you've come across in this, let me know. If you have any good documentaries or, or, or books or anything related, let me know. I'd love to hear it. Um, I, I think this is a really interesting case. Like I said, I've watched a couple of documentary, documentaries myself. I've, watched, I've listened to a couple of different podcasts. Um, one was like 10 years ago. One was actually just fairly recent, like two or three years ago, that had some new evidence, especially after uh, some of the more recent findings, uh, such as the one in uh, 2015 that I mentioned. So, yes, please let me know your thoughts. I would love to hear you. You can find me on Facebook, Our Weird World Podcast. You can send me an email at ourweirdworldpodcast at gmail.com. I'd love to hear your thoughts. I'd love to hear from you. Again, I hope you enjoyed this. Stay safe out there. We'll catch you next time.